conclusion drawn much much later. Uh, but the numbers were mentioned in the in that uh, Adi Parva shloka. Uh, in the Adiparo verse, not shloka. shloka. I should not use the term shloka in connection with Mahabharata because it's a, Mahabharata was trying to rebel against shlokas. It was a rebellious text. It was outside the purview of it. It was outside the arena of the shastras. It was contemporary of the shastra. It was the shastra producing time, and this deliberately remained outside. This. Uh, 24,000 lines is the first known, is the first reference to the known version of the Mahabharata and in those, among those 24,000 lines there is a reference to a work called Jaya which is also described as Itihasa. So it is the Itihasa of a Jaya, Itihasa of a conquest. Now uh, many of us and not those who are present here, but those who are not present here, often ask about the veracity of this war. When did it take place? Did it take place? I mean, there is a railway station called Kurukshetra in Delhi. Did it take place there precisely? Or the, where did it take place? Uh, or did uh, this uh, one of the characters there is extremely prolific uh, in human genetics? 100 children, were they really there? I must set the context right in order to appreciate what is happening here. And for that, I have to step outside the scope of the Mahabharata and go back to Indian history, history of Indian people. Uh, I mentioned the term genetics. Now, I am not thinking of eugenics. I am not thinking of purity of race and stuff like that. That uh, I mean, that is already done by uh, our uh, the late lamented friend Adolf Hitler, and we don't want to repeat what he did. So I'm I'm talking of not uh, I'm talking of recent development in ancient DNA and study of migration patterns, migrations of earliest humans, the Homo sapiens, not the Homo erectus, not the uh, you know other homonyms. Uh, not the uh, you know uh, uh, not the uh, uh, similar kind of human-like species, but just the, this uh, stupid species called which thinks that it is the most intelligent among the animals, and it has described itself as Homo sapiens. The intelligent. <laughs> uh, my school teacher, uh, my school teacher uh, used to tease me, you know, because I was dull in class. And the, the dullest child was called as the, uh, you know, Buddhiman or something like that. So we done that to ourselves. Uh, but we survived. We survived. And we survived, perhaps, and I can say this with some degree of confidence, we developed a thing called language. And we weaponized language. We're still weaponizing it in the deadliest possible manner. The worst, worst among the weapons humans developed has been language and it continues to be so, which I am using against you at this moment. <laughs> but uh, allow me. <coughs> Humans migrated to this part of uh, what we 
very recently started calling South Asia. Uh, earlier, about a couple of centuries before the Orient or what, I mean, whatever, by whatever name you call this part of the group, uh, from East Af from Africa to this part of the world. The first serious migration is 65,000 years before our time. But there have been spells of very cold weather in between. And after a gap of another 20,000 years, 45,000 years before our time, people have come. And subsequently, there is another migration which happened from Iran with agriculture. And yet another migration which happened from, you know, if I were to look at the map of India and look at the country's place on the top of our head, like Uzbekistan, Army, you know, and three or four huh, countries, uh, parts east of that, sorry, parts west of that, what uh, a political scientist will uh, call uh, the uh, Euro-Asian steppes. I used to call it steppes, steppes. In this migration, there has been, there have been seeds of our civilization. Because people came, they mixed. Most, in most cases, Indian women and men who came from outside, they mixed. And we all uh, perhaps go back to the same parents, same, and all of us, irrespective of caste, religion, whatever, we go back there. There have been some major breaks in this story. And we still do not know what, how to account for those breaks. And one of the major breaks is the Indus civilization ended and a new kind of thought, lifestyle, and so, social, so, so, social uh, uh, practice organization emerged. There is a gap of about 500 years. To give you precise dates, the most mature period of the Indus uh, valleys, uh, we call it civilization. I, there is no word for civilization in Indian languages. It is drawn from Latin civil. We In Hindi they call it Sabhyata. Uh, in Sanskrit, Sanskrit is related to receiving impact of the Sanskrit language. You use Sanskrit, Sanskrit. By the way, there is no word for myth in any of the Indian languages. Some people called it Dantakatha, some call it Puranakatha. Uh, Kannada poet Adiga, Gopal Krishna Adiga, actually, and I am addressing this particularly to my dearest friend Dilip Borkar this evening, because he just returned from a dentist. <laughs> During the emergency, Adiga wrote a poem called Danta Katha, and it was about it. <laughs> no, you don't have to speak. <laughs> Some call Puran Katha, but none of the stories in the Purana are part of Indian mythos. Our myths are drawn from the Mahabharata, partly from Ramayana, and not from the Puranas at all. Therefore, none of the Indian, what we call myths, are from the 
Therefore, we, we have no word for myth so far. I'll come to that also in a little bit. The break between the Indus civilization and what followed has been about 500 years. 2500 years before Christ to 1900 before Christ is the Indus period. After a 500 years period of about which we do not know comes the Rugveda from you know uh, Indo-Iranian Armenia is the uh, source place of uh, Rugveda uh, when the, you know it brought at least 300 words from Armenian I mean some of the most sacred gods uh, that we think are there in the Rugveda which is God given word if today you look at it their origin is in Turkey and Syria. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Soma, for instance. Soma. Soma, uh, I mean, if I don't mention Soma in Goa, where else can I say? <laughs> Those 500 years are the time when major social shifts were happening. The first urbanization had collapsed in the country. Indus civilization was an urban civilization. It just collapsed. It collapsed because people say because of environmental changes. Uh, but I will not get into that. There are other reasons still yet to be explored. But a nomadic civilization was emerging. In fact, in part, large parts of Rajasthan, Sindh, even today the nomadic society continues and that has its roots in that and here here come non-urban rather uh, rather imposing rather aggressive people who back home nearly 1200 to 11 or 1200 years before that had uh, at uh, in uh, in you know uh, uh, not just the Elamite and Akkadian empires but in different uh, places in the uh, stages had developed a big unique technique and that unique technique was to have a, a car cart drawn by a horse we had not developed the art of you know uh, tending horses till then we were uh, very good with our elephants the uh, the first writing of the Mahabharata has reference to an elephant. Reference to horses comes in the Mahabharata at a little later stage when destruction begins. Elephant because Ganesha broke his tooth and you know, I am not talking about you, Why are you So, this little weapon of a running cart at a great speed with a sturdy horse from where an arrow could be thrown enabled people to go long distance and settle there and maybe possess the grazing lands lands and women and that happened and it is through that that the Sanskrit language arrived here from 1400 before Christ while urban civilization had disappeared and a new kind of nomadic society was impacting with a very powerful language 
the northwestern and the northern parts of central northern parts of India, what happened? Somebody had to remember. Eighth century before Christ, that is 600 years later, somebody decided to bring all the oral narratives together. And that became the first Jaya called Itihasa. This is how it was. This is how it has been. Those stories were bare stories. Not much literary glitter there. No uh, play on words and uh, no metaphors and so on. Simple stories, genealogies, sto mixed stories of who were the king and uh, no state apparatus, no, no state formation had taken place. Because these are new people, they were still, uh, you know, they had fire, they had horses, they had soma with them, and uh, they had women, and they were taking cows or giving cows. And it was a different transaction, different market, different social space. After 800, things in India changed. And a lot of Eastern Indian civilization started impacting India. Uh, one was, of course, Gautam Buddha with his Pali. Another was Mahavir Jain with his Prakrit. Or both Pali and Prakrit. And uh, a different philosophy not Vedic philosophy, no idea of mythos, but just the idea of the ethos. Uh, the structure of faith, belief, was different. Expectations from the society were different. That clash continued. And that clash continued, resulting in the Vedic, remnants of the Vedic people trying to bring together their strength. You know, just as in the last week of a month, a young lecturer in a university tries to pull all his monies and scrap papers together to meet both ends. From the Vedas, extracts were created called the Upanishads for certain purposes. Similar extracts were, you know, similar passages were extracted for a slightly more advanced purpose called the Brahmanas. Yet at one's purpose, they were called Aranyakas, but the source was the same. It was a loan from your PF fund. <laughs> uh, great works, great amazing works. And the, the quality of memory that went into retaining this, they are just amazing, unparalleled in history anywhere, anywhere else. So I respect that oral tradition greatly. I feel very proud that we had such oral tradition. But without forgetting that on the side was Buddhism in a different language with extremely complex philosophical ideas. And Jainism, for instance, a parigraha, an idea that Gandhi accepted, comes straight from the, the, the first flush of Jaina texts. From the 8th century, compilation of the Jaya to the second century before Christ compilation called Mahabharata is another 600 years and in between comes a contact with Greece a whether Indians 
impacted the Greek poets and they created epics. Or whether Greeks impacted Indians and they created epics is a futile kind of charcha. Futile charcha. Because it adds neither to a knowledge of the Greek epics nor to the knowledge of the Indian epics. But some similarities are, you know, for instance, the character that Bhima kills, like using Gada, is made invincible. It's completely uh, immune to any attack, except for one small portion of the body. And, and Krishna tells Bhima ki, Aapka jo gada hai, gada yudha is the mode chosen by Bhima in that particular combat on the fifteenth uh, day of the fifteenth or sixteenth day of the war. Uh, he chooses to hit precisely there, uh, absolutely to the point, and then uh, uh, Duryodhan dies. Achilles heel is you know Achilles was uh, dipped in the Tigris or uh, Euphrates or uh, whichever that river is and uh, and uh, whatever the river is and uh, but but for the heel and therefore the Achilles heel remained there as vulnerable part. These similarities are not coincidentally. Setting aside all these similarities, I am trying to say that after 600 years of the first retailing of all the all that happened between 1400 to 800 had to be told and the lines had blurred memories had faded and many new things had happened. I mean it's almost like uh, telling a story 1200 years after it had happened. Uh, we are in 22 and supposing we are to tell a story about India in year 1000 or 1100. We would be fumbling actually. We don't know whether Meera was given poison in a glass was or glass, uh, you know, glass uh, kach ka pela or We know that she was she had to drink poison. Because history as we understand history had a blurred for the man who compiled the Mahabharata. He had to invent various methods in compiling those compiling what he was doing. That compilation came to about one lakh lines and it remained in oral tradition very often that got written, handwritten, produced in manuscripts after every three, four, five generations. Yet it remained at manuscript level till Mr. Bandarkar set up the Bandarkar Institute and three generations of editors lavished their editorial care and finally produced the 18 volumes of the Mahabharata. So, if somebody says, when was the Mahabharata written, the clear answer is, it was written in the 20th century. <laughs> it was, I mean, that's a factually absolutely correct answer and, and for that, they had to take help of about, about 1100 different manuscripts, not one matching with any other manuscripts. <laughs> so, if you read the Bhandarkar Mahabharata, you will notice that said that uh, there is a nasate bhavato vidya na bhavo vidyate sata seven variations are there and it says well the pattern manuscript has this sankhya manuscript has the, uh, not vidyate bhava but bhavo vidyata vidyate something like that and the meaning change meaning change leaving that aside 
let me go to this, you know, the one lakh lines of the Mahabharata in the oral tradition there. Did Vyasa, I mean, in the first place, did Vyasa write it? Let me say yes, because there is a Krishna Dvaipayan that is a man living on a dark island. And uh, my uh, friend uh, Sri Aurobindo, I, I feel very close to him because I studied his works. And I, uh, he said, probably somewhere in, on an island. So did he come from the Andamans or which island or Dwarka Bet, you know, because that would be a very uh, nice theory. Um, <laughs> or was it just a dark hill somewhere? Genetics now says that uh, there is a community in uh, what used to be Andhra Pradesh earlier. Now it is split into so many states are split into two or three. I mean, this is the these are splitting times for us. Vyasya is a community where no marriage has taken place outside the community for the last three thousand years. This is what David Rake of Harvard Medical School has. So whether he was a man from I mean, or a community from Andhra Pradesh, uh, Telangana, uh, and uh, who wrote the uh, one lakh verses is difficult to say. Because this Vyasa is ascribed several other texts. Uh, not just there is uh, Hari Vaush from the Bhagavad. Hmm, so, this one lakh lines. But we have to be content with that. We cannot, we cannot ask for greatest clarity on any of these things. And therefore, focusing on that text of one lakh lives, as if it is the Mahabharata, one can say so much that, and uh, I am repeating Sri Aurobindo. Aurobindo said, comparing Valmiki and Vyasa. Valmiki's Ramayana was written a century before the Mahabharata was written. Why? Uh, the, the war described is older than the war in the Ram, I mean time in the Ramayana. But there is no problem because now we are getting uh, uh, movies on Padmavati, whereas last uh, some 50 years back we used to get movies on Jyoti Bafuli so, uh, or Savitri Fule. That is so a movie about a former time coming later, but the movie is a movie. <laughs> This, Aurobindo says, comparing Ramayana and Mahabharata, Valmiki, uh, the Ramayana, no, he says Ramayana is a greater poem, but Vyasa is a greater poet. Fascinating observation. Uh, then he explains, and you know, uh, Sri Aurobindo, when he writes, uh, paper was not so expensive in those days. Every sentence runs into two or three pages or something like that. Long sentence. Aurobindo says, if Valmiki observes something, he lavishes great labor on elaborating. Supposing Ram and Sita meet after a long gap and they look at each other, then Valmiki has 16 lines to describe how their eyes looked at each other. Sixteen, not one less. And then of course the entire night the entire night passed like that and then they said the night is over but the talk is not over. How? I mean if Valmiki spent sixteen lines on that night is going to pass. <laughs> Aurobindo says Vyasa is a greater 
poet. Vyasa does not stop at all in his descriptive uh, uh, trajectory. We have seen on television this Dhrupadi Vastra Haran which went on for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> for Vyasa it takes a single line. <laughs> Believe me, in the Mahabharata of Vyasa, this is, is not, there are a few questions she asks, but those questions are not elaborate questions, not like the Hindi movies. They are simple, I mean, they, they are half a line or quarter line questions. Vyasa is a poet in a rush. Valmiki <coughs> loves his poem. But Vyasa is not worried about his poem. Vyasa was worried about the time that he was trying to depict. And as a result, Vyasa does not, Vyasa is found in that poem not liking any of his own characters. If you look at how he said the characters, we like them, the story is fantastic. And it's so heroic, so enchanting, so... No, no length of storytelling of the Mahabharata will tire anybody. Uh, I grew up listening to stories from my grandmother or grandfather or mother or father and every time my eyes shut, I said, please continue. And they continued. Generations after generation, people have done this. Vyasa is not interested in the characters. He is interested and the, the most care that he has, he, has, he has shown in depicting any character, it is not any of the Pandavas, any of the, any of the Pandavis, any of the women and the uh, Bharata, Mausha, uh, any of the Kurus, uh, any of the other Rajas or the, any of the other Ranis. He's, he has been extremely attached to one character and that is Yama. Now where does Yama come in the story? Actually he is not there in the story, but he is everywhere. There are two such characters, there are two such personas in the Mahabharata. One is Vyasa himself. Vyasa is there at the beginning of the story. I mean, Vyasa is asked to do wonderful things in, you know, in giving birth to children. Vyasa is there at the end of the story uh, saying that this is how it happened. And uh, alas, this is how, and he says it when all the characters except the, except about, except two of them are around. And that is Dharmaraj and a dog. So Vyasa, Dharmaraj and a dog, that's the family. Now Dharmaraj is described uh, both in Adiparva and also in the uh, Actually, the last two or three books of the Mahabharata were super added, added afterwards, accretions. Uh, but, uh, but even in the Sabha Parva, there is appearance of Yama and therefore it is consistent with the, that is in the middle of the, in the one of the middle-ish book and therefore the last book is consistent with that. Dharmaraj is the son of Yama. And that's why he is called Dharma. He has another name, but this is his, this is his grand name, grand name. 
Vyasa is devoted to that character because Yama, who in Vedic literature is an incestuous character, is it in Yama Yami dialogue, with you know both of them, and uh, probably we have to when we have more on ancient DNA, we will know if these migrations and mixing of men and women had anything to do with that. At the moment, we do not know. Maybe some Vedic scholars do know. <laughs> Vyasa was interested in time. Yama and Niyama together form time. So this Mahabharata is a poem about time. And his greatest visible icon or symbol <coughs> Uh, the, the opt the, at the optical level of the Mahabharata is not so much of a not so much a horse or a crown uh, or a bow and arrow. Uh, the Ramayana has arrow and bow as optically most present. Beginning with Dasharatha, going to the uh, not this uh, twin children of Laukush uh, of Ram. Here. The, the the optical center, the visual center of the Mahabharata is a chakra. And that chakra also is described as Kala Chakra. It is Yama's chakra. Yama is Kala. So it is the cycle of time that fascinates uh, Vyasa. Not so many characters. He is trying to look at a vast spectrum of time trying to encapsulate, compress it in the form of a story. Now, um, yeah, you want me to stop? No? <laughs> I'll take about four or five minutes more. And Don't, stop. Don't stop! You know, there's a lovely character in the Mahabharata <laughs> who is deprived of everything. Uh, first, uh, his mother has killed seven of her children. The eighth one remains there. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's very brilliant. He, uh, he studied, he spent some time with his mother. And it's like a Gowani child studying in Oxford or Cambridge, coming up. He's deprived of opportunity of getting married. Then he's deprived of opportunity of ruling, though he is the eldest. Uh, so he decides, when his time comes, to wait till Dakshina is over and <laughs> So I can wait for what? <laughs> this uh, Kala Chakra is the center of Vyasa's narrative and his difficulty was that before him a Buddha had happened and before him a Mahavir had happened. The second difficulty was that Sanskrit was not the only advanced language at that time. Tamil or what we can call Proto-Tamil had been around and Tamil itself was fairly advanced by the time he was writing this. 
three philosophical languages, Pali, Prakrut, Tamil. Three different philosophies, Jainism, Buddhism, and the Vedantic wisdom. If Vyasa had to make his story authentic, he had to make an utmost effort to not be seen being influenced by any of these. Uh, that is, uh, if somebody is writing uh, in the 21st century uh, and wants to be seen like a 14th or 15th century writer, like Tukaram or Namde or, or Kabir, is quite a challenge. Vyasa manages it by inventing a metrical deviation and that is that is a wonderful uh, wonderful uh, contribution that he made to poetic tradition in India. The Vedas had a, a Vedas had in them Rigveda particularly seventy two and half meters. <coughs> Ramayana tried to create a new meter, but Vyasa perfected that meter and made poetry easy to remember. The Vedic poetry, the Richas, are remembered, but those who remember the Richas also have to remember the rhythm of the Richas, otherwise the meaning would change. Whereas in Vyasa's case, he created a meter which whichever way it was uttered had ease of conveying the meaning that the lines contained. I will not get into the, uh, you know, the, the prosody of the poem, Vyasa had to create something else and that is in order to sound credible, in order to give credence to this history of Jaya as history in times when it was almost forgotten, he had to invent, he had to generate, create, uh, fabricate, conceptualize a new understanding of time itself. I mean, he did not go for what is history, he did not go for the question what is history, he went for the question what is time. And that's why his most favorite character, Kala, Yama, Vyasa's theme is not the war, the destruction caused by the war. That is, the, that is uh, a, the, the, the substance that he is using in the theme. But the theme was present time at four different levels. One is, a, call it a cosmic time. Again, cosmos is a Greek word. Uh, Vishwa, perhaps, but I will not get into this you know, jugglery with Greek words, Latin words, Sanskrit words, since I am able to communicate what I want to say. A cosmic time where beginning is there before the beginning we know and an end is there after the end we can experience. <coughs> and therefore Vyasa spends a huge amount of, a huge portion of the second part of the first book in piling genealogy on genealogy on genealogy. In this little book also, I thought I should give a test of 
this genealogies and he begins with creation of stars then you know animals come then out of animals somebody marries a human it's, it's strange but a much larger time then vyasam also must have a history time and for that history time which is major time measurable time he has to say that children studied for so many years they fought in year such and such then they went out and and plunge for a kingdom for one year as on trial the apprenticeship they you know they they are on probation and then after the probation is over the old you know the blind king says no no you cannot own this you must move to the other department so all that is tied in human time in calendar time and names of months uh the nakshatras that will go with those months are all planted there to make it look like history time 18 days the war is fought for 18 days 18 is uh, a very uh, favorite number for this point uh, 18 uh, 18 days war then there was uh, uh, when the gita was added to it it had 18 adhyayas and so on so that they looked organically linked i said i will comment on the gita but gita has the lucidity of verse that the mahabharat has gita is easy to recite and uh, apparently easy to understand though not everybody understands the bhagavad gita uh, the gita has added to it super added to it about three sections at the end uh, which deliberately talk about the social classes that the mahabharat describes the idea of punarjanma the idea of gunas if you don't do if you don't perform your duties now then next year next time uh, you won't have you know a good time etc all that but the gita leaves a little clue to its being super added and that is kurukshetre dharmashetre samaveta yutsha mamaka pandavashtanga ku kim kurvata sanjaya what did he say the gita comes in the middle of the description of war in the mahabharata as we know it today <coughs> in that description the speaker would have said well this is happening it is saying what did happen at that time that is a text which is written afterwards about that war what did happen at that time was then placed within the uh, the war description and this is a generally accepted view of the bhagavad gita uh, yet it is part of the mahabharata as we know it today and therefore accept it as part of the mahabharata i have no problem accepting it as uh, the cosmic time history time then there is when arjun uh, now i am talking Uh, within the gita about the gita and i'll give one more example krishna says do you not believe in all that i say just look at this 
and Arjunas is a Virat Rupa, which is limitless, absolutely, and it's in one moment, it's one moment, and it, it, so it is not cosmic time, it is not historical time, it is a time in the consciousness, like James Joyce's Ulysses, it's time in the consciousness, so there is, there is the psychic time, psychological time in one's psyche. So there is this psychological time, there is the historical time, there is cosmic time, and there is a mythological time. And the mythological time is created by Vyasa by depicting every character as if it is not real, but as it is mythological. And therefore, it is difficult to say which of them are historically there, correct, verified or verifiable, which of them are purely mythological and therefore not historically true. In fact, it would be quite inappropriate to ask the question as to which part of the Mahabharata is history and which part of the Mahabharata is myth. Because Mahabharata is neither dealing with history as an order of things or myth as an order of things but altogether a different order of things. And that order of things is Mahabharata is dealing with one's understanding of time and nothing more. That method of dealing with the past, dealing with time, has impacted Indians all through the centuries. And, they, and we continue to hand, we continue to internalize that method no matter to which tribe or which caste or which religion we belong in this country. I'm, I'm, I'm no offense to any other religion. That it is, but it has become a second nature for us here. And that is why we turn living human, human beings into superheroes. <coughs> when somebody, let's say, let's say this desk is only 22 inches long, but somebody says it's 56 inches. Yes. <laughs> this giving superhuman, superhuman, uh, or somebody is working for let's say twelve hours. Then is not uh, is uh, that person is keeping very close eyes on everything twenty four hours. <laughs> we learned that uh, it's it is our undoing, but it is also. Uh, in some of the some of the uh, uh, mid 20th century English uh, novels, like Raja Rao's uh, Kantapura, for instance, Gandhi becomes a superhero <coughs> because he's walking, walking from you know this uh, with a stick, and some 20, 30 followers or 60 followers from Sabarmati to Gandhi. Gandhi is walking, becomes Superman, the <coughs> Superman of innocence. Superman of purity. I mean, it can happen again also. <laughs> we internalize it. We can't help it. Now, Vyasa's greatness is in avoiding immediate impact of Buddhism, Jainism, Dravidism, remaining within the so-called Sanskrit sphere of knowledge, and yet inventing a completely new method of looking at the past, which is neither the mythic order nor the historic order, but order altogether 
different and that I call the Mahabharat way of looking at the past. We are a nation, not, I mean, I'm not talking about the constitution of India, which says India, that is Bharat, is the union of states, physical states, as well as mental states, I'm not talking about that. But we have been a nation, when we were not this union of states, when we were probably so many chota chota kachara kingdoms, uh, we were a nation, uh, I mean, what else, because history has trashed them. <coughs> I mean, what history has trashed has to be described as trash. <laughs> so, uh, we have been one people because we belong to this method of looking at the past. And the best comment on the Mahabharata is not about the Mahabharata. It is by Prem Chand, the opening of a story of Prem Chand. Is uh, Bab Jada Reis Nahite. Everybody's grandfather is a great person. <laughs> the Mahabharata method, a cosmic time. Sorry. Everybody's school teacher is a great yogi, cosmic time. Anyway. <laughs> the Mahabharata is unique. And despite our becoming modern, it allows us to carry that tradition because that tradition of looking at the past is no threat to our being modern. Mahabharata is a wonderful work because it is neither myth nor an epic. Mahabharata, despite not being such a great poem as Sri Aurobindo said, shows the greatness of the poet. And uh, I think this character Vyasa must be a fascinating, fascinating character, whether it was a person or a community or an entire generation or a uh, or a you know strategy making group of experts. Think tank. But this think tank, this person has thought about time and the work and this history that it was trying to complex in such an organic way that being organic being organic has become the highest civilizational value for us in south asia i feel very nice being here uh, if i die i would like to die in this country and, uh, whether I have other card or no, <laughs> like to as no, uh, because I have this kind of access to this kind of consciousness. Thank you so much. Chelsea, <laughs> I, I wrote this uh, little book uh, because uh, Sureka, my wife, decided to lock me inside a room when Corona came, and she said, "Please go and work." So. Uh, I wrote it when Corona started uh, in a frenzied manner, non-stop. Uh, thankfully, she gave me food when I was writing. Uh, being on my own, I mean, I say I have been making notes of, on the Mahabharata from the time I was 25 years old. And uh, now that I'm in my... Uh, not, uh, it... <laughs>
end of last 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 over being on my own i thought i would open the book of my memory and paint a portrait of a poem that has been speaking to the nation for two millennia i done it in the hope that the future world is free of all viruses tangible and abstract my mind is at peace with the future